This is Jocko Podcast number 158 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. There was blood all over the floor and smoke in the air. I heard shots fired outside, but I wasn't quite sure who was shooting or what they were shooting at. I moved down the hallway, confirming that all the rooms had been cleared. I soon found the source of the blood, a wounded Iraqi civilian on whom my SEAL hospital corpsman, a highly trained combat medic, was working to apply medical care. And that's just a short little opening from chapter two of the book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, uh, that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. And in that chapter, I go on to explain how during this operation in Fallujah, Iraq, we went on to detain multiple suspected terrorists that night. And I don't go into much detail about that. And I don't talk about the people that we captured. We think, I think we took, I think we took about 13 people off target, military aged males. We were probably looking for two or three. We weren't, couldn't figure out or confirm who they were. So we brought all the military aged males off target. And so, We end up at this detention facility and we're turning these individuals over. And I'm sitting there kind of just looking at them, just sizing them up. Um, This is one of the earliest operations I had done in my life. It was the first big operation I did in Iraq. And so I'm sort of curious, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I'm looking at the people that we had captured. Like I said, I think there's 13 of them. And just looking at them, looking at their emotions that they were going through and some of them look scared right in fact i would say the majority of them just look scared Mm. just this is not good and this is a bad situation and you get that feeling like okay this guy's probably not bad and will be released some of the guys looked mad which is understandable too you know someone comes into your house in the middle of the night and then takes you and you can be mad about that if you can overcome the scared part, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, these people had lived under Saddam Hussein, so they'd been through some brutal stuff. And mm-hmm. for them to be not afraid was also an understandable thing, some of the older gentlemen. And then there was one guy, though, that he looked he looked different. The look in his eyes, it definitely wasn't scared, but it wasn't even mad it was like beyond mad it was beyond angry it was beyond a fanatical look the look that he had in his eyes was evil looked like an evil we could see evil there and i i never will forget that that face and i would see that type of face again over the years Especially in Iraq, you'd go out and capture someone that was known for doing horrible things, and you could tell, you'd grab five or six people, and you'd say, oh, let me guess which one is the bad guy. Mm. And it usually wasn't very hard to tell, and then occasionally some of those bad guys would just look, they looked completely evil, they looked like sadists, they looked like murderers, They, they had the face of evil, you could see it in their eyes. And I was watching a video recently of a 
uh, young, beautiful young girl, uh, blonde hair, kind of unkempt blonde hair, a little bit wild, and she had a like a constant, persistent smile, sort of shining on her face. She had young, little innocent eyes that were filled with hope. And I watched this video and she says in the video, she says, my name is Louisa. I'm a young lady from Denmark and I have a burning desire to go out into the Arctic. And she's going on kind of describing herself. She says, I'm very enthusiastic about the outdoors and outdoor activities. I'm studying outdoor life in Norway for this same reason. I'm trying to find my dream. She says, to go into the Arctic. But sometimes I take some detours before I end up where I want. And in the video, she's got clips of her in various parts of the world on beaches and in jungles. And she's clearly a traveler. And then she says, but I'm still working my way towards the north. A dream that has been stuck in my head. And I hope, wish, and pray that I can achieve my dream. A dream of experiencing the feeling of kicking a dog sled through the big Arctic. About feeling the ice crystals in my face. And the view of an infinite white landscape. I dream about learning and experiencing the magnificent untamed Arctic. And the video ends with her picking up snow in her hands and she blows it innocently into the camera lens and she's laughing. And then the video fades. But she was not able to fulfill her dream. In fact, she entered a nightmare and didn't return on December 17th, 2018. That girl who made that video, her name was Louisa Jesperson and her friend Marin Euland, another beautiful young lady from Norway. They were both brutally, brutally murdered by a group of subhuman savages as they camped beside a hiking trail in Morocco. And these despicable and vile people, and I use that term loosely, these these savages that murdered these two girls actually recorded their disgusting acts and posted them online. They attacked these girls. They sawed through their throats with butcher knives while they were still alive, while they were screaming. 
while they were gasping for air, while they were begging for mercy, and while they were eventually gurgling in their own blood. And then fell silent. And one of the murderers put his foot on one of the girl's heads to hold her neck in place while he finished the job of decapitating her. And these subhumans pledged their allegiance to ISIS and shouted, it's Allah's will as they killed these innocent girls. Sick, depraved, vile creatures. Evil. Evil does exist. Here is another example of evil. I started doing time when I was 11 years old and have been doing practically nothing else since then. What time I haven't been in jail, I've spent either getting out or getting in again. I have no desire whatever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me, and I believe the only way to reform people is to kill them. In my lifetime, I have murdered 21 human beings. I have committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and last but not least, I have committed sodomy on more than 1,000 male human beings. For all of these things, I am not the least bit sorry. I have no conscience, so that doesn't worry me. I don't believe in man, God, nor devil. I hate the whole damned human race, including myself. I preyed upon the weak, the harmless, and the unsuspecting. This lesson I was taught by others. Might makes right. Carl Panzram, number 31614. And that is the opening of a book called Panzram, Journal of a Murderer. Carl Panzram was evil. He was institutionalized for most of his life in detention centers and prisons. And whatever may have been good about him at one time or another was eventually suffocated. And what was left was pure, unmitigated hatred and malevolence. 
And while he was going through one of his final stints in prison, he made friends with a young prison guard by the name of Henry Lesser. And Henry Lesser seemed like a very good, positive person. Kind of had the ideal of reform and how people could be helped in his mind. And Henry asked that Panzram write the story of his life, which which Panzram did. And the notes were saved, saved and documented. And there was additional information from various supporting sources surrounding other details of Panzram's life. And all of that was put together and turned into this book. Which, though it is a very difficult read, it's, in my opinion, worth reading to gather a better understanding of of human nature, and specifically of the capacity for men to commit evil. So, again, most of this that I'm going to read from the book is his his writing Carl Panzram's writing and here we go back to the book I was born June 28th 1891 on a small farm in Minnesota my parents were of German descent hard-working ignorant and poor the rest of the family consisted of five brothers and one sister all of whom are dead except three of us brothers and our sister all of my family are as the average human beings are they are honest and hard-working people all except myself I've been a human animal ever since I was born when I was very young at five or six of age I was a thief and a liar and the older I got the meaner I got as fast as the older boys grew up they also pulled out one died they this left me my sister one older brother and my mother my sister and I were sent to school during the days, and as soon as we came home in the evenings, we were put to work in the fields where my older brother and my mother were always at work from daylight until long after dark sometimes. My portion of pay consisted of plenty of work and a sound beating every time I looked cockeyed or done anything that displeased anyone who was older and stronger and, cap- and able to catch me and kick me around whenever they felt like it. And it seemed to me, and still does now, that everything was always right for the one who was the strongest, and every single thing that I'd done was wrong. Everybody said so, anyway. But right or wrong, I used to get plenty of abuse. Everybody thought it was all right to deceive me, lie to me, and kick me around whenever they felt like it. And they felt like it pretty regular. That is the way my life was lived until I was about 11 years old. At about that time, I began to suspect that there was something wrong about the treatment I was getting from the rest of the human race. When I was about 11 years old, I began to hear and see that there were other places in this world besides my own little corner of it. I began to realize that there were other people who lived nice, easy lives and who were not kicked around and worked to death. I decided that I wanted to leave my miserable home. Before I left, I looked around and figured that one of our neighbors who was rich and had a nice home full of nice things, he had too much and I had too little. So one night I broke into his home and stole everything to that to my eyes had the most value. Those things were some apples, some cake, and a great big pistol. 
eating the apples and cake and carrying the pistol under my coat. I walked to the railroad yards where I caught a freight train going to the west where I intended to be a cowboy and shoot Indians. But I must have had my wires crossed because I missed my connection somewhere. Instead of going out and seeing the world, I was caught, brought back home, and beaten half to death, then sent to jail from there and from there to the Minnesota State Training School at Red Wing, Minnesota. Right there and then, I began to learn about man's inhumanity to man. So he's off to a rough start. Yes. And it was his father had left him, and I didn't mention that part. Obviously, I'm not reading every part of the book, but his father left the family, and then it was up to his mom. Sounds like he had the uh, more than his share of the, the rebellious streak that I think most kids have. And then he shows up at this Minnesota, Minnesota State Training School. Back to the book. When I first went to the Minnesota State, tra- State Training School, I was about 12 years old, lively, healthy, and very mischievous, innocent, and ignorant. The law immediately proceeded to educate me to be a good, clean, upright citizen and a credit to the human race. They trained me all right in that training school. During my two years, I was trained by two different sets of people to have two different sets of morals. The good people tried to train me to be good, and the bad people did train me to be bad. The method that the good people used in training was to beat goodness into me and all the badness out of me. They'd done their best, but their best wasn't good enough to accomplish what they set out to do. The more they beat me and whipped me, the more I hated them and their damn religion. Oh yes, we had plenty of church and religion, all right. I used to be pretty ignorant and not able to read very well, so I was always had a hard job learning my Sunday school lessons. For failure to learn these lessons, I was given a whipping. During the first year I was there, I used to get a beating every Saturday night and sometimes three or four more during the week for doing something I wasn't supposed to do or for not doing something I was supposed to do. Oh yes, I had plenty of abuse. They had various methods of punishing us for doing wrong and for teaching us to do right. The most popular with them was to take us to the paint shop, so-called, because there they used to paint our bodies black and blue. Naturally, I now love Jesus very much, much. Yes, I love him so damn much that I would like to crucify him all over again. I was too dumb to learn anything in school, so they took me out and put me to work all day washing dishes and waiting on tables in the officer's dining room. Right there, I began to get a little revenge on those who abused me. When I served some food to the some of the officers, I used to urinate in their soup, coffee, or tea and masturbate into their ice cream or dessert and then stand right beside them and watch them eat it. They enjoyed it too because they told me so. I wish they could read this now. The next thing I tried to do was poison that Mr. John Moore by putting rat poison in his rice rice pudding. But they caught me, beat me, and put me out of the dining room. About that time, I began to try and figure out some way to punish those who punished me. The only thing I could figure out was to burn down the building in which the paint shop was located. This I did. I got a long, thick piece of heavy cotton string, wrapped it around and around a long, round stick, and lit one end of it 
and hid it in the laundry near some oil-soaked rags. That night, the whole place burned down at a cost of hundred over $100,000. Nice, eh? Some of the boys who were cleverer than I finally put me wise to how I should perform if I ever wanted to get out of that joint. They told me to act like I was a very good boy, tell everybody I met how much I loved Jesus and how I wanted to go home and be a good boy, go to school and learn to be a preacher. I done just as they suggested, and I'm damned if it didn't work out just as slick as hot grease through a tin horn. I was called in before the parole board one day, and there I told them all the lies and hot air I could, and they gave me a parole and let me go home. In that way, I first found out how to use religion as a cloak of hypocrisy to cover up my rascalities. <sighs> Rough way to kick things off. Yeah. It, but you almost like, you know, you talk about like evil. You almost feel it for him, though. Oh, you know, for sure. You almost are on his side, kind of yeah. like. Yeah, everyone was just beating you up your whole life, making yep. just grinding you to the ground, beating you up, and then like, yes, you're getting it. That's how you feel right now. Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things that's going to be, you know, yeah, you feel sympathetic for someone, and then you as as that person moves through life. First of all, it's there's other people that have been through worse things that turn out great and wonderful human beings. And there's other people that go through less that turn out worse, right? So there's, it's, it's, a, I'm no psychologist, but there's, there's, it's one of the things that's troubling about this. Yeah. And as you, as you hear what he goes through and what he turns into, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And, you know, at the end of the day, in, in my opinion, like, hey, you're still responsible for your actions. Yeah. And hey, we get it that you went through some hard things. That doesn't give you an excuse to behave yeah. in in an immoral way. It just doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. I'm sure that, um, you know, like he, he was saying how he's, you know, pissing in the soup and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, I'm, uh, it, I'm assuming that was of the people who were like yeah. trying to correct him and yeah. you know and beating him like more. The staff, you know, the yeah. staff of the of the school where he was being trained at. Yeah, so I think that's sort of why you're like kind of feeling for him because it's like, oh yeah, you're getting direct revenge on them mm-hmm. kind of thing, and you're of course you're an angry kid. Yeah, of course what you went through, but then yeah, once you start just taking it out like, oh, let me see an innocent person, I'm mad at them because their life is, and then you kill them or something, then yeah. that's when you're gonna start. To not feel for him, yeah. I'm sure. I think. Yeah, well, I think so too. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do get that kind of feeling, like, oh, these guys are beating you up. Now you're getting a little revenge. Yeah, for yeah. You could you could make a positive movie about that, right? You could make a positive could, story yeah, about you that. You could spin it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depending on where it goes from there. Yeah. So right now, you're you're on his side. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, okay. is okay. what I'm hearing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically. Back to the book. After serving about two years there, I was pronounced by the parole board to be a nice, clean boy of good morals, as pure as a lily, and a credit to those in authority in the in the instruction where I'd been sent to be reformed. Yes, sure, I was reformed all right. Damn good and reformed too. 
When I got out of there, I knew all about Jesus and the Bible, so much so that I knew it was all a lot of hot air. But that wasn't all I knew. I'd been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite. And I had learned about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing. From the treatment I received while there and the lessons I learned from it, I had fully decided when I left there just how I would live my life. I made up my mind that I would rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went and everybody as long as I lived. That's the way I was reformed in the Minnesota State Training School. That's the reason why. So that's a little bit more that that's that's where you have something in his in his personality, right? There's yeah. something. There's plenty of people that went to this school that didn't go and do what he did. He made that something snapped. Yeah, where he decided that he was just going to make his life a life of making people suffer. Going on back to the book. I did not want to learn these lessons, but I found out that it isn't what one wants in this world that one gets. Force and might make right. Perhaps things shouldn't be that way, but that's the way they are. I learned to look with suspicion and hatred on everybody. As the years went on, that persisted in my mind. That persisted. That idea persisted in my mind above all others. I figured that if I was strong enough and clever enough to impose my will on others, I was right. I still believe that to this day. So this is just just twisted. Yeah, it's really it doesn't take long for him to get pretty twisted. And like, there's a lesson here of the lesson that he talks about. If I found out that it isn't in the what one wants in the world that one gets, it's like that's actually an important lesson. Like you don't always get what you want. Mm. But then taking that to say, hey, if I'm strong enough and I can force my will on things, mm. then I'll get what I want more often. Yeah, and and that he did say clever enough too. Yeah, which kind of it's weird because like a real low, super low level of that still goes on. I think with with a lot of people. Oh, there's you know, like, no doubt about it. You know, with justification and you know how like you know you'll you know you'll you'll justify things in your head. You know, be like oh, you know when you do something bad yeah. or you do something you know is unfair, even that kind of low level stuff, like it's not hurting no bunch for sure, but mm-hmm. it's like maybe not fair or something like that. And you just justify in your head. And you know, like some people, they're clever, like they're smart. Yeah. So they can justify their justifications are way more legit seeming because they're real smart. They can just, you know, yeah. it's kind of like what lawyer, you see the lawyers do in the movie. You yeah, know, you paint someone sure. to be like someone like what the, it, you kind of take things out of context and put other things in context that are not supposed to be there kind of thing. And yeah, you just kind of paint this picture in your own mind why what you're doing is right. And of course, in other people's mind too, you know, and you're clever yeah. enough to and get why, away with it. Yeah, you, you're justifying it to yourself. And he's he's not even talking about that. He doesn't need to justify it to yeah. himself. He's doing what he's doing to, to get what he wants. Yeah. And his use of being clever isn't to justify to himself his use of being clever is just to outwit people and take advantage of them yeah be a con man beyond a con man and he gets so he's in and out of prison and he goes back into prison he gets out of prison he goes back into prison here at this point he broke out of prison and he hooks up with a guy named jimmy benson back to the book he showed me how to work the stick up racket and how to rob the poor boxes in churches I, in turn, taught him how to set fire to a church after we robbed it. 
We got very busy on that, robbing and burning a church regular every chance we got. When we got tired of riding a train, because this is their, their uh, you know, hitching on these trains. When we got tired of riding on a train, we used to open up the journal boxes, take out the greasy waste packing, and throw in some sand or gravel into it. They wouldn't get far with that car. So they get done riding a train, and they just destroy it. They, you know, they ruin the gearboxes. Mm. Just general destruction of everything. Continues in and out of prison. One time he's drunk, and here's a guy talking about the army, and ends up enlisting in the army. Back to the book. I was only in the army a month or two when I got three years in U.S. military prison at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I had the job of swinging an 18-pound hammer in the rock quarry most of my bit. My number was 1874, and my name was Carl Panzram. There, I'd done 37 months. I'd done plenty of work, and I had plenty of punishment, and the only good part of it was that they didn't try to hammer any more religion into me. At this time in my life, I was about 20 years old, six foot tall, and weighed about 190 pounds of concentrated, hell-fired, man-inspired meanness. I was strong as two or three average men. I had to be to be able to withstand some of the punishments and labor that I went through during my three years in the U.S. um, military prison. One of my tasks and punishments while there was to be shackled to a 50-pound iron ball for six months. During that time, I wore the ball and chain day and night, slept with it, and worked with it on. My work was in the rock quarry, and that was three miles from the prison. The gang of about 300 convicts and 40 screws used to march out in the morning and back at night. The other men had to carry nothing except themselves, but my part was to load my iron ball, an 18-pound hammer, a pick and shovel, and a six-foot iron crowbar all into a wheelbarrow and march behind the line of cons out to the quarry and work there for eight and a half hours in the hot Kansas sun busting big rocks but all that treatment did one good thing for me the worse food was and the harder they worked me the stronger I got that's what I was gonna say oh, he, so he got a good workout yeah. already big and you way. think yeah he's six feet two, uh, 190 pounds back in what is it 1900 or whatever he's mm-hmm. a yoked dude back then <laughs> yeah. And then he's doing all this hardcore physical labor. And yeah, he's turning into a very scary dude. Back to the book. I was discharged from prison in 1910. By the way, can you imagine you're in the army for a couple months and you get put in the Leavenworth for three three years? I was the spirit of meanness personified. I had not at this time got so that I hated myself. I only hated everybody else. Before I left there, I sung them the same old song and gave them the same line about how I sure loved Jesus and what a nice young man I was and how much good it had done me to be sent to that prison. I don't know if they believed me or not, but they all said they did anyway. They all declared that I was pure as a lily and free from sin. Again, there's a bunch of traveling. There's a bunch of he's a constant criminal. Mm. And that's another thing we we realize back in this day. The reason he named he said, "Oh, at this time I was Carl Panzram," is because mm. he changes his name a bunch because oh. that's what just what you would do back then if you were a criminal. Oh. And there's no electronic tracking system. Yeah. There's no phone numbers, no cell phone. There's not even phone like phones in everyone's houses. Yeah. So you can get away with murder 
yeah. quite literally, and he does. But he, he he's maybe not the best criminal as well because he gets caught a lot, yeah. you know, for robbing and stealing. And part of it's because he has like a doesn't care attitude. Yeah, yeah. So he gets put, he gets arrested a different time. He gets put into a chain gang and he eventually breaks away from, escapes the chain gang. And then he goes continuing skipping trains and ends up with an Indian guy. And they work together as a little team and they rob a guy. And here we go back to the book. The Indian tied him up. First, he took off his belt, pulled his pants down to below his knees and tied his legs together. Then he tied his hands behind his back. Then he tied his hands to his feet, pulled together. Then he stuffed a sock in his mouth and tied a handkerchief tight over that and then tied him to a tree. He was then ready to leave him and walk away, but I wasn't through yet. I figured while I had such a good chance as that, I would commit a little sodomy on him. This I proceeded to do. And he mentions at one point that he he hooked up with a girl and got some kind of VD. And then he was like, oh, girls, they're dirty. And so that's why he goes after guys now. Back to the book. At, at night, while I was riding the freight trains, I was always on the lookout for something to shoot or trying to stick up the hobos that I met on the trains. I looked them all over and whenever I met one who wasn't too rusty looking, I would make him raise his hands and drop his pants. I wasn't very particular either. I rode them old and young, tall and short, white and black. It made no difference to me. Some months later, I was pinched at Chinook, Montana for burglary. I quick took a plea of guilty and got one year at the state prison at Deer Lodge, Montana. When I got there, I met my old partner, Jimmy Benson, who was doing 10 years for robbery. I stayed there about eight months and escaped. He, he's also good at escaping. He escapes all these things all the mm. time. A week later, I was arrested in Three Forks, Montana for burglary under the name of Jeff Rhodes. I pleaded guilty and got a year and was sent back to Deer Lodge, where I was at once brought to court and given one year for my escape under the name Jeff Davis. Out of these three sentences, I served 23 months. In that prison, there was only work for a few men, and I wasn't one of those. All the cells were for two men in each cell. Each man could choose his own cellmates and get a new one anytime he wanted. I used to want a new one pretty regular. At that place and time, I got to be an experienced wolf. I knew more about sodomy than old boy Oscar Wilde ever thought of knowing. I would start in the morning with sodomy, work as hard as, as hard at at it as I could all day and sometimes half the night. I was so busy committing sodomy that I didn't have time left to serve Jesus as I had been taught to in those reform schools. He gets out of that prison. As soon as I got to Oregon, and gets put in another prison. I got to, as soon as I got to Oregon State Prison, I was in more trouble. I swore I would never do the seven years and defied the warden and all his officers to make me. Gets put in solitary confinement. Here we go in solitary confinement. There are coolers and coolers. Some are bad and some are worse. None are good. Some are cold and wet. Some are hot and dry. Some you freeze and others you roast and sweat. In all you are hungry and thirsty and filthy and dirty. 
And some of you stay a day, others a week, and there have been times when I've been in the cooler a month or more. Bread and water isn't very nourishing, and neither does it generate clean thinking in a person's mind. The milk of human kindness generally curdles and turns into sour under such conditions. The more cooler you get, the more heat and hate there is in your heart. In every joint I was ever in, there was always some form of torture that was on tap. I usually got my share of every kind there was. I have had them all at one time or another. And then he goes on through a bunch of different torture that they would use on these prisoners from like straight jacket type things. There's something called the snorting pole, which is a post about 12 feet long. You get basically tied to it. You get whipped. Back to the book. When the lash begins to take away little bits of hide and the blood begins to run, then the sucker begins to jerk and yelp and snort. That's why it's called the snorting pole. When a man is let down after being whipped, he has blood on his back and murder in his heart. That's, that's all about the snorting pole. There's the bat and the paddle. There's, here's this thing. The restraint machine. The restraint machine, barefooted, standing on a cold, damp concrete floor, backed up to an iron-barred door, hands behind, cuffed to the door, a large belt under my arms, around my chest, pulled tight to the door, standing in that position for four hours, then let down for one hour to eat my bread and water, then four hours more, then to bed, which was a board, no blankets. In the morning, bread and water, and then four hours more, and so on for a stretch of anywhere from five to 14 days. That was the limit. That's your restraint machine. If you were, okay, I know you're claustrophobic, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you are. Yeah. But sometimes, I I don't think I'm claustrophobic, but sometimes I want to move a limb, right? You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And for instance, you're on a plane and you're, it's all tight in an economy seat up against the bulkhead. Mm-hmm. And there's like, it's tight. Yeah. You know, that part of the plane towards the back where the, 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 the bulkhead kind of curves in. So you're even losing a little bit more space. Yeah. And you just want to move. Yeah. You know, but you mm-hmm. can't cause the seatbelt light just went on or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Now imagine doing four hours like that for 14 days four hours twice a day for 14 days yeah so that's that, harsh yeah that's actually real harsh so there's like two way and to, to say i'm because cla- claustrophobia usually is like you know ele- you, you go in an elevator and you feel it that kind you know i don't i don't have it like that mm-hmm. but uh, yeah maybe i'm a little bit more sensitive to those kinds <laughs> you have of scenarios side control, <laughs> side control <laughs> claustrophobia well, well you know i used to yes but this is more what it is to put it accurately. Did I heal you? You healed me, yeah. <laughs> Actually, what it was was like you just I just got in better shape. That's all. Because oh. like it wasn't it was the idea that I'm like tired and I won't be able to get out of here. Like I'm stuck here forever. I'm gonna die here. That's the feeling you get. But when I wasn't tired, I'm like, oh no, I can cruise down here. I just I don't know. I just felt like it was better. The last time we rolled, didn't you have a little issue down there? No. Are you sure? Yes. I don't, I don't remember having any issue okay. recently, probably like year. It's been years, but that's the feeling is what it is. So, but here's the, when I got an MRI on my arm, you tapped to something the other day. That's not a tapping offense. I forget what it was. 
it was your that that forearm on my throat oh, remember yeah. it was yeah, yeah, yeah. like i okay. couldn't yeah, it was too like you did it too hard <laughs> for me to have time to figure out okay i can turn this way or whatever to relieve the pain you did it like too fast oh i did it with like a little extra like a little yeah it wasn't like a strike or nothing like that but yeah it was like i would have got my throat would have got injured if i would have like <laughs> <laughs> took more time <laughs> thanks for that by the way <laughs> i had a uh mri on my Oh, you bicep. have to go in that tube. Yeah. So, which is fine if you're just in a comfortable position. Mm-hmm. It can be when you open your eyes and you look how freaking <laughs> the tube is like inches in front of your face and you're in there. And it, yeah, it can kind of jam you up, but you just close your eyes and be like, oh, I'm, that's you know. a big, it's a claustrophobia is a big deal in the, in the SEAL teams, especially because oh, you had to lock out of the sub submarine chambers, which isn't in the old days. It was a submarine chamber that wasn't built for seals to lock out of it was built for an escape hatch if there's an emergency on the submarine what do you mean lock out what does that mean you're underwater on a submarine yeah and you go into a little chamber uh-huh. and then once you're in the little chamber it fills with water it equalizes with the outside and then the door opens up and you gotcha. can swim out okay. that's that's called a lockout chamber and we used to do that yeah. and uh there's still we still do it but like it's a little bit more of a specialized group that does that now yeah. but it used to just be a general thing for for if you were in the dames you yeah. would do that and I mean, definitely, because you're in there with equipment. For so how long? A while. Like it would what, take a long uh, time to get a whole SEAL squad out. Like what? More, like what's a while? Like well, you'd five be, minutes? You'd, you'd be in that little chamber uh, for probably 15 minutes at a time. <sighs> but here's the thing. You're in there. There's two major situations going on. Number one, you're not just in there. You're in there with like one or two other guys. Yeah. But you're also in there with equipment. Yeah. So you got bags of weapons, waterproof weapons. You actually have your boats in there, and they're so it's all yeah. tight. Yeah. And here's here's what would really freak you out. <laughs> so the water starts to fill. It starts to fill up. Yes. And then as it's filling up, it gets to a point where you got to keep it equalized, and you're using these little pressure valves. Mm-hmm. One, you you basically crank a valve that pushes air into the chamber, oh. and so that pushes the water down. If you're not good, then you're gonna mess up the pressure and you're gonna, it's called losing the bubble because there's a bubble of air that you're just sitting there breathing. If you don't equalize the pressure well, then that bubble just keeps going up and then you lose the bubble, the bubble's gone. (laughs) Which I think is where the, that's what I always thought, losing the bubble, you've heard that term, right? No. Okay, when someone says, oh, he's losing the bubble, you've never heard that before? No. Well, we would say it, and I've heard it. I've heard civilians say it too. So yeah. I'm pretty sure that, that might it's be it. yeah. Submarine. But I think that that's where it came from. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, you're losing the bubble. And I've been in the chamber when someone lost the bubble. Yeah. And I remember, I was telling the guy, I was like, hey, you're losing the bubble. You're losing the bubble. You're losing the bubble. And then I'm underwater. And then you got to find the <laughs> you got to find the octopus, which uh-huh. is the the regulator, which you have. You have air tanks just in there, like compressed air tanks, like scuba tanks yeah. that are strapped to the wall uh-huh. just in case someone loses the bubble. And, what and then you, you got to find, they got a chem light on them, a red chem light. So then you're just dig- digging uh-huh. around. You got to grab the red chem light. You find your thing. You start breathing and you find the valve and you crank it. Yeah. And then the bubble comes back. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. The, no, but people, yeah. You, you, if you're claustrophobic in that situation, it's going to be problematic. Big time. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Because it's just like, the expression on your face at this time tells me that you would not. Be how big was it? How big is the chamber? Like, Sm- it's smaller than the the area that you and I are sitting right now. So it's yeah. Tight. Yeah. <laughs> So my MRI for my bicep, I had to go like this, like my hand, 
up in the air. Well, you know, I'm laying down, so it's not up in the air, but like, so you're not laying, laying regular. Mm. One hand is up. Oh, okay. And for 15 minutes in that little teeny tiny tube. Uh-huh. So like how you're saying, I could lay on my bed like that. Did they sedate you or anything? No. You just oh, dealt man. with it. No, yeah, this is, no. I've had a few MRIs in my time, but I just relaxed and went in there. No big yeah. deal. I didn't lose the bubble like you did. Right. No, 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 no. The thing is I did. Well, here's the thing. So this is when I really admitted to myself, okay, I have like a little um, sensitivity to it. Um, so he's like, okay, you got to put your arm up because it, you know, and you can't move. So I'm thinking, man, I can just lay down my bed like this all day. I'll sleep like that, you know, but why am I super like nervous about this? So I go in and he's putting me in and I feel my heart just start beating real fast, like in full on. Mm. I'm like, oh man. But, um, but I mentally pushed through it. Like the kind yeah. after like, not a, even a minute, but maybe like 30, 45 seconds. I'm like, ah, uh, you know, it- have you ever watched guys cave diving? Like, what do you mean? No. Like yes, yes, diving yes, yes. in caves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when uh-huh. there's underwater, but it's an underwater cave. Yeah. And you're diving. Yeah. That can get a little tight. Yeah, so, and that, I, we, um, on Kauai, there's a place called the Blue Room, mm-hmm. and it's that. And here's the thing. So, it's basically a cave. You walk up this mountain, maybe like, I don't know, 50, 50 yards, maybe, up a mountain, and you go into the mountain. <laughs> well, no, no. The mountain is huge. Oh, okay, you just walk it, up 50 it, yards, it, then there's okay, a cave. Cool, That's where the it. cave is. And you go in the cave, and depending on, on you know how much it rained or whatever, there's a little lake in the cave. It's really mm-hmm. cool. We used to always go. At the back of the cave is a little teeny tiny hole. Mm-hmm. Teeny tiny hole. So if the water's too high and it covers that hole, it's still a hole, but it's on, you got to go underwater. Mm-hmm. So at the end of that, it, basically that hole is a hallway that you swim through. You can't mm-hmm. touch the bottom. It's like you swim through this little hallway and it goes and it curves. This is maybe maybe a 20, 20 yards. Dang. maybe, And eh, not 20. That's, that's you know, maybe 10 mm-hmm. yards mm-hmm. in the dark, though. And the only light is this glowing, bright blue light that the water creates from the sun that shines in the water and, and kind of reflects up. It's really, it's really nice, but... Yeah, if you have an issue with that, especially if the when water's kind of high. When you get to the other high, side, what do you... It's a big room in there. Oh. That's and is kind that, of the is thing. that open to the light? The light from the water lights up the room. So it's, oh, wow. it's yeah, it's really weird. That's why you kind of go, because it's really awesome. The thing is, there's nothing to hold on to. You're treading water in that room. So it's like... Oh, the room is deep water. Yeah, you can't touch. It's a huge lake in there, you know? Dang. So you can't touch the bottom at all. And... um. But if the water level is high enough where that cave or the, the hallway, we'll call it, is like this, yeah. you know, where you can just barely, t- it gets like, oh, this is kind of nerve wracking for sure. But sometimes it's real low and it's cool. You just swim through. But if it's like your first time or you have a little bit of claustrophobia in, in water like that, you'll, it'll jam you up for sure. But I never had a problem with that one. Mm. It's that. It's what you said. When you know you can't move. Yeah, but, but if you know you can move, also you can just stay there. It's weird. It's like a psychological thing, you know. Yeah, no, it's definitely I mean, a psychological, a psychological thing. thing. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, I get that every once in a while on the plane too. The restraint machine. So, I guess that would be really effective against some people that have a little claustrophobia, or they this would just go nuts. Freaking, the thing is, though. Okay, let's say all these methods are bad, right? Let's say all these methods of reform are bad. Yes, I feel good about saying that, yes. Okay, and then you say, okay, if I was in that situation, I would do everything I could to get out of the scenario where, 
like, okay, I got arrested and I got put in the restraint machine and I got the the beat with a paddle and I got all those things happening. Guess what? You know what I'm going to do is try and Shape try up. and stay clean a little bit, right? <laughs> get on the maybe get on a little bit of a of a path, sure. a better path. Yes, sir. Yeah. It didn't work at all. No. At all. He didn't care. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes sense that like when what did he say when after the snorting pole or whatever like oh you just blood on your back and murder on your mind or whatever yeah Yeah, that seems like because even the claustrophobia thing on the on the what's that called the restraint situation four hours every like every session all day you know like after a while you're like you're gonna get used to that or you're gonna go so nuts that you're just gonna faint or i don't know something Mm -hmm. like that Either way, there's a part of your mind I would think, I don't know. This is just what it feels like listening to it. I feel like I would just be so nuts at the end. Like I like mm. I would I wouldn't care about that restraint thing. I would just care about like murdering the yeah. person or something. I could see how that could go. Yeah. yeah. I mean I it personally could definitely would, could go that way. I would probably try not to go there anymore, but that's just me. Yeah. So maybe as a reformer, if you cross the line and you make someone snap now you're no longer being productive. No. This is true with your kids. And maybe you haven't experienced this yet. But you can like push your kids to a point where they don't care. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll take this away. I'll take this away. And then all of a sudden they go, I don't care. Take it. They throw their toy. You know the toy yes. that you're threatening? Yeah. They throw it at you. Yeah. Take it. Remember the Breakfast Club? Remember that movie? I do remember. Okay, remember the, the part Club. that guy John Bender? What was his real? I forget the actor's name. But anyway, it's, I'm just drawing a blank. Bender is his name. And he's which like, guy is which character? The bad guy, the bad kid. Okay, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's rolling, and he's like, um, he's like, hey, did Barry Manilow raid your, or did you raid Barry Manilow's wardrobe? And he's like, I'll give you the answer to that uh, next Saturday. Saying like, you got another yeah. detention here next yeah, yeah. Saturday. And then he says something else. He goes, yeah. then you got another Saturday. And he's like, well, I'm free this Saturday. You know, he yeah. did that. He yeah, was yeah, after yeah, all, yeah. like, I don't care. Yeah. He's like, yeah. you really think that? And then he's holding up the horn. Two months, <laughs> Bender. I got you two months. <laughs> yeah. That was good. That was a good part there. So, yes, you can't push it too far. And, obviously, from a leadership perspective, we'll just go for a little leadership perspective sure. here. There are things you can do to the people that work for you where they won't care anymore. Yeah. And now you... now. You, you you're done. Yeah. You have you lost control over. Yep. You've lost control over. Them. So don't do that. Uh, he talks about this electric electric shock too. They called the hummingbird. First, an ordinary steel bathtub with in which four or five inches of ice cold water. The victim is laid down in there and chained hand and foot then the chief torturer enters the scene he is dressed in ordinary clothes and and has only a rubber slicker and a pair of rubber gloves on his hands in his hands he holds a common sponge the sponge is connected to electric battery by wires the switch is turned on and the torture advances on the victim he first begins on the soles of the feet by gently rubbing the charred sponge there and then gradually working his way up to the body and to the head. The sensations of, to the victim are that there seems to be millions of red hot needles sticking into him. The agony is intense, two or three minutes, and the victim is ready for the grave or the madhouse. Yet there is not a single mark or bruise on his whole body. A physician stands beside. This is sick. The a, a physician stands beside the victim and every few seconds feels the pulse and examines him. When he judges that the victim is exactly on the verge of madness or death, he gives the signal to switch off the current. Then the victim is thrown into a cell where he is left for a few days or weeks. Yeah, that's weird. The sponge, how they put the sponge there. Yeah, like 
on Lethal Weapon One, he, <laughs> he got he got uh, rigs with that. Remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember, it well, but he had that's that. what it made me think of when he had the the sponges. Yeah. And he's in the shower, all tied yeah. up like that, and he keeps like hitting them. Yeah. He's like hit him again. Yeah, those sponges. I wonder what that that's about, though. The sponge it conducts, it just conducts the electricity. It, yeah, because yeah, it, it will fill with water. You. Water conducts. It doesn't, yeah, yeah, it so doesn't leave a direct mark. It's just hitting you with like a big shock, pillow of shock. <laughs> Dang. Uh, it continues on. He gets eventually gets out of that prison, and and he actually broke out of that prison, and then he's now he's just on like full crime mode i don't even know what goes beyond crime mode but just full stealing raping murdering swindling he steals enough money he works on a bunch of different boats and eventually steals enough money to buy a yacht so he (laughs) bought a yacht yeah Yeah. and i don't know what how big the yacht was but it wasn't small and here we go back to the book on my yacht i had quarters for five people but I was alone for a while. Then I figured it would be a good plan to hire a few sailors to work for me, get them out on my yacht, get them drunk, commit sodomy on them, rob them, and kill them. This I'd done. Every day or two, I would get plenty of blues, booze by robbing other yachts there. The barber, too, was one of them. I robbed her a dozen or so others around there. I was hitting the booze pretty hard myself at that time. Every day or two, I would go to New York and hang around 25th Street and size up the sailors. Whenever I saw a couple who were about my size and seemed to have money, I would hire them to work on my yacht. I would always promise a big pay and easy work. What they got was something else. I would take them and their clothes and gear out to my yacht at City Island. There we would go and wine and dine, and when, we, when they were drunk enough, I would go to bed. Or they would go to bed. When they were asleep, I would get my forty-five Colt automatic army pistol. This I stole from Mr. Taft's house and blow their brains out. Then I would take out a rope and tie a rock on them and put them into my rowboat, rowboat row them out in the main channel about one mile and drop them overboard. They are there yet, ten of them. I worked that racket for about three weeks. Eventually gets on another ship, loses that, kind of gets, um, people are suspect. He goes, gets on a ship to Europe. From Europe, he goes to Africa. In Africa, he buys a girl. I paid a big price for her. I bought her from her mother and father for about $8 in American money. The reason I paid such a big price for her was because she was a virgin. Yeah, so she said. She was about 11 or 12 years old. I took her to my shack the first night and took her back to her father's shack the next. I demanded my money back because they had deceived me by saying the girl was a virgin. I didn't get my money back, but they gave me another younger girl. This girl was about eight years old. I took her to my shack, and maybe she was a virgin, but it didn't look like it to me. I took her back and quit looking for any more virgins. I looked for a boy. I found one. He was our table waiter. I educated him into the art of sodomy as practiced by civilized people, but he was only a savage and didn't appreciate the benefits of civilization. He told my boss, and the boss man fired me quick, but before he did, I licked the hell out of him. The boy, 11 or 12, came bumming. Another boy, about 11 or 12, came bumming around. He was looking for something. He found it, too. I took him out to a gravel pit about a quarter mile from the main camp of the Sinclair Oil Company. 
I left him there, but first I committed sodomy on him and then killed him. His brains were coming out of his ears when I left him, and he will never be any debtor. He is still there. He ends up murdering another six people in Africa on a boat. He like chartered a canoe and then kills everyone in it and then signs on to a ship that's heading back to New York. That was the summer of 1922. He arrives back in America, back to the book in Salem, Massachusetts. I murdered an 11 or 12-year-old boy by beating his brains out with a rock. I tried a little sodomy on him first. I left him laying there with his brains coming out of his ears. Went down towards New York, robbing and hell-raising as I came. In January or February of 1923, I got a job as a watchman at 220 Yonkers Avenue, Yonkers, New York. While there, I met a young boy of 14 or 15 whose name was George and whose home was in was and is in Yonkers. I started to teach him the fine art of sodomy, but he had, but I found he had been taught about it all, and he liked it fine. I kept him with me in, until I left that job of ni- in April of 1923. The kid George got scared and I let him go home to Yonkers. When he got there, he told the police all he knew about me, which wasn't much, but it was enough for the cops to come looking for me. They caught me in my yacht at Nyack. They took me, boat, and all my plunder to Yonkers jail there, charged me with sodomy, burglary, robbery, and trying to break jail there. In and out again. A few days he gets out. A few days later, I went to New Haven where I killed another boy. I committed a little more sodomy on him, and then tied his belt around his neck and strangled him. Picked him up where he was when he was dead, and threw his body over behind some bushes. Eventually, he does his time. He gets trial for the uh, sodomy, burglary, and robbery. Pleads guilty and immediately given the limit of the law five years at once I was sent to Sing Sing and then from Sing Sing he gets sent to another prison called Danimora which is a, a notorious notorious prison it says in the book of all the prisons Danimora was the one and only dis- designed specifically to punish and so now this gets really interesting because he's in this really bad prison and there's a description that's not from him. That's just part of the book, part of the information in the book talking about Dana Mora and how bad it is there. And then he's done all this heinous, I mean, just heinous acts that he should be killed for over and over again. And here he is, um, Going back to the book, I attempted to escape. I failed in my attempt, but in doing so, I fell about 30 feet to a concrete walk, breaking both my ankles, both my legs, fracturing my spine, and rupturing myself. In this condition, I was carried to the prison hospital where I lay for five days and was carried out and dumped into a cell without any medical or surgical attention whatever. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put into a cast. In fact, nothing was done except give me a bottle of liniment, which I would have done which would have done no good if I had been able to rub it on myself. The doctor never came near me and no one else was allowed to do anything for me. In that condition, I was left for eight months. At the end of the time, the bones had knitted together so I could stagger around on a pair of crutches. So it's like he's complaining about his maltreatment, right? Mm -hmm. I got injured and they didn't take care of me. It's like, Mm -hmm. hey, bro. (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> you, you don't get any good treatment. At the end of 14 months of constant agony, I was taken to the hospital where I was operated on for my rupture and one of my testicles was cut out. Five days after my operation, I tried to see if my sexual organs were still in good order. I got caught trying to commit sodomy on another prisoner. For that, I was thrown out of the hospital and dumped into a cell where I suffered more agony for many months. Always in pain, never a civil answer from anyone, always a snarl or a curse or a lying, hypocritical promise which was never kept. Crawling around like a snake with a broken back, seething with hatred and a lust for revenge. Five years of my life of this kind. The last two years and four months confined in isolation with nothing to do except brood upon what I thought the wrong what I thought was the wrongs that had been done to me, not allowed to receive letters or visits from friends. When the prison inspectors came to investigate conditions and complaints, they were told I was a degenerate, that I suffered from delusions, that I was insane, so they would pay no attention to me or anything that I or anyone else ever complained of. This went on for all of my five years, and the more they misused me, the more I was filled with the spirit of hatred and revenge. I was so full of hate that there was no room in me for such feelings as love, pity, kindness, or honor, or decency. I hated everyone I saw. Uh, Again, it's a guy that he only sees the pain that's been caused to him, but apparently doesn't see any of the pain that he's causing anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Zero empathy. Yeah. Zero. Doesn't it sort of, could it seem, or could it happen like this with him? Where, you know, when he's young, he gets beat down. Mm-hmm. Obviously not shown much affection. Mm-hmm. That's that's an assumption, obviously. But beat down. So now he has this hatred. So now mm-hmm. he inflicts pain on, quote unquote, others, mm-hmm. right? Because of the hatred he has or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like him kind of what? Getting even. For sure. For lack of a better term. So he gets even, and then he gets punished for that. Right, obviously, because yep. you can't commit crimes like that. So he gets punished. So now he thinks it's uneven now. Hey, you know, yeah, it's just the feeling. He's not eye. like, now yeah. He's... So now he's like, oh, now that now me being punished for what I did, by the way, but me being punished is giving me even more hate. Now I gotta, you know, seek vengeance for that. Then he does it. Then of course he gets, and he just keeps doing it. Yeah. So it's like this cycle. Well, the, there's another cycle here. And the cycle is he's blaming everyone else for the situation that he's in. Oh yeah, that's we, how you know it's he's like, blaming every. And at a certain point, sure, let's let's blame that first state penitentiary that he was in when he was a kid, the state school. Let, let's put some blame on them. Okay, yeah. but you got out of that, yeah. and you had another opportunity to get on the right path. And and then you, what do you do? You just blame, 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 blame. Yeah. And the more you're blaming other people. You're putting yourself into a downward spiral that he's never going to get out of, obviously. Yeah. And he, now he's blaming. He blames the whole human race. I mean, l- let's. It's it's real easy just to sort of. He only writes about it for three sentences, but like, oh, oh, in New Haven, I raped and murdered an 11 year old boy. Yeah. Like, no, you don't get any mercy now, yeah. and you can't blame anyone else for doing that. That's no one else's fault. Yeah. You did that. Yeah, but in his mind, the, oh, for sure. Like, uh, you know how, like, when you hit, your, let's say you flick your friend on the head, joking around, 
right? You flick him on the head. Okay. You're joking. Around. Then your friend's <laughs> like, should be interesting. Your friend's like, hey, that was kind of hard, you know? So he, so he like flicks you and you're Escalation. super hard. Yeah. And you're like, hey, I didn't flick you on the head that hard. So you, so you smack him, you know? And it turns into this big fight. And who's 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 to blame, right? Yeah. Both guys feel like, hey, I flicked you. I was just joking. You didn't have to flick me that hard. The other guy's like, why'd you flick me in the first place? You know, kind of thing. So, and I'm not saying that that's what happened. But in his mind, that's probably what it feels like. Oh, for sure. That's what it feels you know? like. For sure, that's what it feels like. And we all can feel like that at one time or another. We think, yeah. oh, it's this person's fault. It's yeah. that person's fault. Yeah. It's my parents. It's the school system. Mm-hmm. It's the whatever. It's yeah. society. Yeah. Right? It's society. Yeah. It's every other human being. Like, that's where he's at right now. He hated everyone I saw. Yeah. That's where he's at. So it's like he's the victim. And he's the victim. And and you just, just listen to, I mean, it's so clear when he's talking about all these medical problems that he he's the victim. Yeah. He's the victim. Whereas if he would have just swapped his attitude early on and said, okay, what about what's happening right now? Even the first, why did he get, why did he get sent to the state penitentiary or to the state school system? Because he stole a gun, ran away, ripped, ripped off a family of their stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, if you do that, you go to prison. But he didn't see that. This is his fault. Yeah, that wasn't yeah. his fault. Yeah. He did that because he was living in a bad home. Yep. It's like, okay. At some point, you have to take ownership of what's going on in your world. Yeah. And you can't just continually blame other people. If you do, eventually, you know who's at fault? Everyone in the world but you. Yeah. It's true. So let's not get there. I'll tell you what. It was a pretty good transition for when I joined the Navy. That's one thing. And I've talked about how when I joined the Navy, it's like a clean slate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you did. And that was a really positive thing for me yeah. because all of a sudden, and it's a very cause and effect when you're going through like Navy boot camp or mm. any kind of boot camp, any kind of military indoctrination. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, you get punished for it. Mm. If you do what you're supposed to do, you either A, don't get punished at a minimum or you get some type of reward. Yeah. And it's all set up that way purposely. Yeah. But it's very easy. It was very easy for me to comprehend as an 18 year old kid going, oh, if I, if I do this right, I will be rewarded. If I do this wrong, I will be punished. Mm. This is on me. And then what you re- then the next thing that they build on top of that is if I let my team do something wrong, we will all get punished. Yeah. If we do things correctly, we will receive at a minimum no punishment and possibly some type of reward. It was very easy for me to assemble those pieces in my young brain. And let's face it, when you're 18 years old, I mean, my brain wasn't all that developed, right? I mean, yep. right, like, physiologically speaking, the, the, the male, like, what is it? The male frontal cortex isn't fully formed until they're like 25, right? Didn't you yeah. tell me that? Yes. Yeah. So there you go. Mm-hmm. So there I was, 18, and I yet was able to figure out, okay, wait a second. If I do this, it's on me. If I get punished, it's my fault. If our team gets punished, and and again, that's a that's a little jump. They're they kind of bring you through that little phase of like, okay, we get, now you're responsible for you. You understand that? And once you understand that, it's like, okay, now you're responsible for your team. Mm. And some people don't make that transition. Some people, you know, it, within the team, mm. oh, it wasn't my fault. It was Jimmy's fault. Yeah. Right. And as you stay in the military longer, or as you go in any workforce, eventually you realize, oh, okay, if we don't. If I don't work as a team, we're all going to get punished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I need to help the team. He's not learning any of this. No, no, he's not helping any That's team. That's awful. 
back to the book my whole mind was bent on figuring out ways to annoy and punish my enemies and everybody was my enemy I had no friends that was the frame of mind I was in when my five years was up and I was turned loose to go anywhere I wanted to go my intention was to rob rape and kill everybody I could anybody and everybody and he goes through these long kind of plans of putting bombs in inside tunnels and and had to get a gas mask he was gonna use poison gas and he was gonna steal so much money and then with this with this bunch of money that he was gonna get from robbing all these people in in this plot that he has with that he says with unlimited funds in my hands I then intended to steal millions of dollars and kill millions of people this I intended to do by starting a war between England and the USA Sounds fantastic, all right, but I'm positive he could have done it. He goes through his whole plot of how he was going to make that happen. He was going to bomb a British ship that was, you know, like here peacefully, mm. bomb it and make it look like America did it. What when diplomatic uh, relationships were already strained, that was his plan. Mm. It's crazy. I used to spend all my time figuring out how I could murder the most people with the least harm and expense to myself, and I finally thought of a way to kill off the whole town, men, women, children, and even cats and dogs. And he goes through another big plan about using arsenic and and dead hogs and put them in the water supply. I mean, he goes through like detailed plans. Now, this was some interesting, his perception of what it was like. He's back in jail again. Um, and I forget what for this time. But for all this crap that he's doing all the time, all these crimes he's committing, back to the book, the underworld code is very simple. It is never squeal. Don't be a stool pigeon, a rat, or an informer. All crooks want everybody else to believe that they are square. Cops are the same. They all wish everybody else to think they act from principle. They're always telling everyone they meet about how much principle they have. It is against their principle to do this or that. The queer part of it is that they not only want others to believe this, but they believe it themselves. But the real truth of the matter is that they deceive themselves and mistake policy for principle. When crooks are square with anyone, it is because it is for their own interest to be so. It is good policy. When it ceases to be in their own interest to square with another one, then it becomes time to change their tactics, and they aren't slow in doing it either. It makes no difference to them who they snitch on, no matter if they've been loyal to each other through a whole lifetime as partners and friends, no matter if they send their friends to prison or to hell by way of rope or chair. That cuts no ice. They are looking out for their own precious skins. And this is a guy also that doesn't trust anybody. Yeah. So, and that's actually what he said. I mean, certainly that's, there's, you can't say that about it. You can say that about a lot of people, but there's all kinds of criminals that never give up the, never, never give anyone else's names, mm. never rat on anybody else. <laughs> and they get the book thrown at them and they take it. Yeah. Back to the book. Every child has, this is interesting. Every child has some criminal tendencies. It is your place to correct those traits and teach them the right way to live while they are young and their minds are forming. Then when they do the, reach the age of reason and action, it will be quite natural for them to live clean, upright, honorable lives 
in that way you will stop crime at its source before it begins as a child a child is very easily led any child if properly taught will live the way he is taught to live all criminals are merely overgrown children it is in your hands to make us or break us. We, by our own efforts, are failures in life simply because we don't know any better. We don't know how to live decent, upright lives. Hereditary, heredity has very little to do with the shaping of our lives. The main causes of why we are what we are is because of our improper teaching, lack of knowledge, and our environment. Every man's philosophy is colored by his environment. If you don't want us to rob, rape, and murder you, then it is your place to see that the mental and moral misfits are properly taught a sufficient amount of useful and sensible knowledge to put their proper to and put into the proper environment where they can be best fitted to exist in life. So there you go. The nature nurture argument, Pan's Ram. All nurture. all nurture. Yeah. It's all how you're raised. Hmm. He goes on, I was born a normal human being. My parents were ignorant, and through their improper teachings and improper environment, I was gradually led into the wrong way of living. Little by little, from bad to worse. I was sent to reform school at age 11. From that day to this, all of my life has been lived among moral and mental misfits. All of my associates, all of my surroundings, the atmosphere of deceit, treachery, brutality, degeneracy, hypocrisy, and everything that is bad and nothing that is good. It is unnatural that I should have absorbed these things and I have become what I am today, a treacherous, degenerate, brutal, savage human, devoid of all decent feeling, absolutely without conscience, moral, pity, sympathy, principle, or any single good trait. Why am I what I am? I'll tell you why. I did not make myself what I am. Others had the making of me. Everyone else's fault. And I'm not in the power to control it, right? I mean, at this point, he recognizes what he is, but he doesn't make any effort to reform himself. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of those two, like, even with extreme ownership, right? When you're working with a team, mm-hmm. when you say it's easy to blame others, mm-hmm. and especially when it is their fault at certain times, it's like their fault that this happened and that happened. Mm-hmm. It's like a philosophy, right? <laughs> it's like an approach. It's a certain approach where if you say, okay, you know, whatever. It's their fault that this happened or whatever. It's really hard to come up with a situation when you're a leader of a team and it's the team's fault. Yeah. I haven't been able to come up with one lately. Yeah, yeah. So, and and to say it's Maybe their, you can. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it is. Well, okay, we'll go with this guy. A, guy, a guy on Twitter. Yeah. He said, hey, man, why are you sure. giving all this hate to the machine gunner shooting outside their field of fire? Because I use that example a lot. Yeah. Hey, the machine gunner shoots out of, outside of his field of fire. Yeah. That's the machine gunner's fault, right? No. And I, I said to him, hey, man, I don't hate machine gunners. I hate the officers that blame the machine gunner when the machine gunner doesn't know where he's supposed to be shooting. Yeah. That's not machine gunner's fault. Yeah. That's your fault, boss. Yeah. So, so continue on about the situation well, okay, that you're trying okay. to refer so to. I, so I, I, because this is like a typical little thing that I'll hear from people. It's like, well, you know, sometimes I yeah. gotta take ownership, even though it's a 
really there? Yeah, yeah. If that's what you think, you're wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, so that, you're wrong. No, okay. I, I, I dig it. But that, and cause, because right now I'm not saying about whose fault it is. That's, mm-hmm. not, that's not the point I'm trying to make. It's more that he's right. It is because of them. Like they or the way his parents raised him mm-hmm. did cause him to be like this. It caused him to be like this. Mm-hmm. Didn't cause him to be hit like... It didn't like his parents raising him didn't um, make him, you know, sodomize that kid or mm-hmm. whatever. He didn't they didn't make him do it. But their ra- the way they raised him caused him just cause and effect straight up caused him to be like that. Quote mm-hmm. unquote. Now, it's his fault. Yes, it's his fault that he's doing all these things, yeah. you know, because you can just not you cannot do it. That's possible to yeah. just not do it that day or to, at all or whatever. So, yeah, as far as fault and blaming, yes. Okay. You're going Sam Harris free will on me. Well, <laughs> see, uh, the thing is, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like if you don't go into the lack of free will. Yeah, lack of free will. No, well, n- not necessarily. I'm, I'm just basically isolating the blaming part of it and then the cause and effect part of it, you know, kind of thing. Because in that case, he's, he's right. Like they're what he's saying is correct as long as he's not saying and it's their fault and it's not my fault i'm not you know he is saying that actually. yes okay so so push that aside he's right i did not make sense. myself what i am others had the making of me it's everyone else's fault yeah, that i'm like this yeah, yeah that's 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 not extreme ownership right there no but oh. go cause an effect on them here's my point here's my point because this is not this is a gray area right we're in a gray area here's the problem if he looks at it, if the only lens that he looks at it through is this is everyone else's fault and yeah. he's not to blame, right. then guess what? He's not going to make any changes. Yeah. If he had a little bit, if he just looked at the situation and said, you know what? All these things happened. But some of this is because of me. Yeah. Some of this is because the actions that I've taken. And I can now change my behavior so I don't stay in this mode of operating right now. That's the difference. Yeah. And he never makes that change. He never makes that that different. He never sees it that way. The only thing he sees is that it's everyone else's fault. And when you, this is the thing. He, he goes, you can see it gradually increases. He's He's going from like, oh, I just hate the teachers and, and I just hate the the wardens and and eventually he hates everybody Mm. because it's everyone else's fault. Even people he doesn't even know because they're a member of the human race. He hates them. Yeah. That's why personal responsibility is so important to teach to kids. Yes, sir. It is so important to teach to kids. And that's one thing I think I learned. I mean, obviously I got some of it from my parents, but it was really crystal clear in the, when I came, when I came in the military because it's black and white. That the gray area is gone when you go through some kind of military indoctrination. The gray area is gone. You mess this up, it's your fault, and you're going to get punished for it. Yeah, but you still get guys right that for oh, sure, the for sure, drill sergeant is right yeah. in me or whatever. Or you know, Billy should have done this. Jones should have done that. Right. It's like okay, but it doesn't matter because you're, yeah. you're going to pay the man. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. Back to the book. I have. Only a little knowledge, but I have as much intelligence as the average person, and I know I was taught wrong. I could have been taught properly, and if I had been, I sure feel I would have led a far different life than I have done. You are to blame more so than I. Straight up. Straight up. You. He's talking to us. He's talking to the general human, the race of human beings. 
That's my belief. If you are going to go on teaching others as you have taught me, then you must suffer the same as I. Uh, here we go. He is at this point on trial. And this is from like a, I think this is one of the ones from a newspaper clipping or a report, but it's another part. This is, so this isn't Panzram's journal. This is some of the additional information. Back to the book. On the stand, Panzram's eyes slid toward the table where his pistol and burglar tools lay. Prosecutor Collins whispered to an assistant who hurried over and removed the exhibits to a safer place. The arms of the witness chair disappeared under Panzram's huge hands as he faced the jury, ignoring everyone else in the courtroom. You people got me here charged with housebreaking and larceny. I'm guilty. I broke in and I stole. What I didn't steal, I smashed. If the owner had come home, I would have knocked his brains out. Panzram's eyes took on this a strange depth as he watched the jury. There's something else you ought to know. While you were trying me here, I was trying all of you too. I've found you guilty. Some of you, I've executed. If I live, I'll execute some more of you. I hate the whole human race, he said evenly. A juror gasped. Panzram's round head suddenly swung toward the prosecutor who looked alert and suspicious. You think I'm playing crazy, don't you? I'm not. I know right from wrong. No delusions. I don't hear anything you don't hear. My conscience doesn't bother me. I have no conscience. I believe the whole human race should be exterminated. I'll do my best to do to do it every chance I get. The courtroom was now numb as Panzram turned to the jurors once more. Now I've done my duty. You do yours. So... <clears throat> He gets a long prison sentence, and when he gets into prison, he actually kills a uh, one of the civilian workers there in prison, like mm. a guy that just is like a maintenance guy who runs the laundry, mm. and he's has a beef and kills him. And this is where we start. This is one of the letters. So I talked about the guy Henry Lesser who was a guard in one of the prisons he was in who formed a relationship with him and he actually says a couple times that this is the only guy that like didn't try and take something from him. I think mm. it, the whole thing started off he gave him like a dollar mm. to buy cigarettes or whatever and no one according to him no one had ever done anything nice right. for Pandra mm. in his whole life and this this guard was the first guy to do it so he develops a relationship with him mm. and so they go they write letters back and forth and here's the excerpt of one of those many letters. Back to the book. The real truth of the matter is that I haven't f the least desire to reform. Very much the reverse of that is true. I would not reform if the front gate was open right now and, I was, and if I was given a million dollars when I stepped out. I have no desire to do good or to be good. I am just as mean now as I can be and the only reason I am no worse is because I lack the power and the proper opportunity for meanness. If I had the power and the opportunities, then I would soon show you what real meanness was. 
You overlook the fact that the law and a great many people have been trying their damnedest for 25 years to reform me. I am tired of having people try to reform me. What I want to do is reform them, and I think the best way to reform them is to put them out of their misery. It took me 36 years to be like I am now. Then how do you figure that I could, if I wanted to, change from black to white in the twinkling of an eye? Another letter. Same theme. I have no desire to reform under such conditions as would be required of me the way the laws of this country are today. I do not care to live any longer if I must live in prison. I would far rather die and go to hell if that's where people like me go after death. I've very thoroughly considered this matter, and I assure you now what I say is the truth. I have confessed 21 different cold blooded, premeditated murders, hundreds of cases of cases of arson, burglaries, robberies, rapes, and other crimes. The law has by this time looked them up and verified the truth of my various confessions. My philosophy of life is such that very few people ever get and is so deeply ingrained and burned into me that I don't believe I could ever change my beliefs. The things I have done to others The things I have had done to me by others and the things I have done to them can never be forgotten or forgiven either by me or others. I can't forget and I won't forgive. I couldn't if I wanted to. The law is in the same fix. My belief is that the life without liberty is not worth having. If the law won't kill me, I shall kill myself. I fully realize that I am not fit to live among people in a civilized community. I have no desire to do so. If I had any choice in living any longer, the only way I would consent to do so would be to get clear out and away from all civilized people. I am so set in my ways that I cannot adapt myself to the ways of other people so that the only way for me to do would be to live by myself without any human companionship, whatever." He actually describes this island that he kind of spent a little time on when he was down in South America. He's like, send me there if you wanted to send me somewhere. Goes back. So now he'd killed that other guy, Warnke, um, the civilian. Now he's going to trial for that murder. And this is a newspaper report of that trial. Back to the book, the commission heard the hard-boiled giant tell of the fun which he received in killing a man, and there isn't a man in this room I wouldn't kill, the cruel-visaged, steel-eyed man told the commission. I'm mad, plenty mad right now. I don't believe there's any good in any man. I'd like to have the opportunity to go away, gain power and brains, and then I'd like to kill off the rest of the world, the convict said. Dr. Perry asked the giant if he believed himself better than the rest of mankind. Hell no, was the reply. I've checked up on myself lately and I know that I'm probably worse than the rest of you. I have no desire to live. If you would hang me, my troubles would be over and I would be better off. But don't you fear hellfire? A member of the commission inquired. You haven't been able to prove to me that there is such a thing, Pansram answered. The man boasted in court of killing 21 persons and vowed that when his parent were his parents living, he would kill them, quote, for bringing me into the world, 
There are two things in this world that count as powerful, money and knowledge. If I could get enough money, I would buy brains because brains are for sale. I could get a brainy chemist and I would have them prepare me a lot of poison gas and germs. With these, I would be able to exterminate a great mass of human beings. Then I would kill myself. Society should build a great monument because I have never propagated my kind. So that's what his little excerpt of what his trial was like this you know he was done I mean he just did not care back to the book and this is the the book itself the court convened again the next morning and the judge having been given no alternative by the hard rural jury looked down at the defendant and pronounced him guilty with no mention of life-saving phrase without capital punishment Panzram had nothing to say concerning the sentence Hopkins then ordered that he be Remanded with to the care of the warden at the federal penitentiary penitentiary at Leavenworth there to be confined until the fifth day of September when between the hours of six and nine o'clock in the morning you shall be taken to some suitable place within the confines of the penitentiary and hanged by the neck until dead. The judge then announced the 90-day interval to allow for any bill of objection and appeal. Before the defense attorney could speak, Panzram said swiftly, I don't want any attorney to file for a new trial or appeal anything. I am satisfied with the verdict. So, while he's now on death row, there's a like a delegation of people that are against capital punishment. And they start fighting to get him off death row. Mm. And he writes them a letter. And here's a little part of that letter. On February 1st, 1929, I began serving this sentence at the U.S. Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. On June 20th, 1929, I murdered one man, a civilian employee of the prison by the name of Warnke. And at the same time and place, I also attempted to murder a dozen other men, both guards and convicts. The only reason I did not kill them was also because I couldn't catch them. If I, had give, if I am given another trial, or if the death sentence should be commuted to life imprisonment, either in penitentiary or an insane asylum, it will be against my will. And then he goes on to try to explain to them, because he doesn't want them to think that he's crazy. Because if he's crazy, then he's not. He's going to get it's you know insane asylum or you know reason of insanity. Back to the book. I shall try and convince you that I am quite sane at this time. I am at this time thirty-eight years old, a big, powerful man, strong in both body and mind. My physical fitness is not as good as it once was, but my mental facilities are unimpaired in any way. I've never used drugs of any kind or any type. I am. I am and always have been a very moderate drinker of liquor, practically a total abstainer. I've never taken any disease of any kind which would have the tendency to weaken my intellect. I have never been addicted to any habits of sexual excesses of any kind over which I didn't have complete control of myself. I choose to die here and now by being hanged by the neck until I'm dead. I prefer that I die that way. And if I have a soul, and if that soul should burn in hell for a million years, still I prefer that to a lingering, agonizing death in some prison dungeon or a padded cell in a madhouse. I do not believe that being hanged by the neck until dead is a barbaric or inhuman punishment. I look forward to 
to it as a real pleasure and a big relief for me. I do not feel bad or unhappy about it in any way. Every day since I received that sentence, I felt pretty good. I feel good right now, and I believe that when my last hour comes, I will dance out of my dungeon and onto the scaffold with a smile on my face and happiness in my heart. Another reason why I believe that this sentence should be carried out is because I believe it is justice, and I am quite sincere when I say that this is the first and only time in my life of battling with the law that I ever did get justice from the law. One other thing I am going to tell you before I stop this letter, and that is this. The only thanks that you or your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that I had my hands on it. I would sure put you out of your misery, just the same as I have done with numbers of other people. I have no desire whatever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me, and I believe that the only way to do reform to people is to kill them. My motto is rape them all, rob them all, and kill them all. I am very truly yours, Carl Panzram. Another letter, I think it was the next to the last letter that he wrote to Lesser, Henry Lesser. He says, I had no choice about coming into this world and nearly thirty nearly all of my thirty-eight years in it have had very little to say and do about how I should live my life. People have driven me into doing everything I have ever done. Now the time has come when I refuse to be driven any further. So again, I've just done. I've only done what I've done because of what other people have done to me. Mm-hmm. That's not on me. Zero responsibility. <laughs> Everything I've ever done is because of other people. Ever, ever. It's a slippery slope that you just tried to step on a couple minutes ago. Yes, it is actually. And you're thinking about it, aren't you? Yeah, and, and but I'm not wrong. Because I'm not talking about the blame. I'm ta- talking about cause and effect. But here's the thing, though. Cause and effect is kind of like it's easy to start blaming. You know, you caused this. You know what I'm saying? Technically. technically. I don't want to split hairs, but technically there's a difference. My point is, if you have the... And this this I mean, I, I work with people all the time. And this is the, the most important transition that people make in their brain is whether you're a business leader, whether you're talking about your personal life, whether you're talking about the the family, whatever you're talking about, the transition that you make from doing what you're saying right now, which is like, well, it's actually their fault. If that's Mm -hmm. in the back of your mind, Mm -hmm. okay. If that's in the back of your mind, like, okay. The problem is it grows. The problem is you use that. The problem is, next thing you know, it's not just that that's their fault, it's this that's their fault, and it's the other thing that's their fault, and it's my team's fault, and it's, a, and I, it's not my fault. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, just to be clear though, the, I'm not saying the fault part of it. The fault, fault and the blaming, that part of it literally has nothing to do with it. So what are you saying? Cause and effect, they're two different things. No. There's Look, put it this way, look, okay. And I used to kind of say this as a joke, where, I don't know, let's say I did something, mm-hmm. right? And then I'd be like, well, it's not my fault. It's, um, you know, my parents' fault for having me. 
Oh, but it's their fault. Their actually, it's my grandparents' fault for having them. Oh no, it's the you know my great grand you know, mm-hmm. and you start just blaming every little factor that contributed to this result. Mm-hmm. Every little factor. Yeah. Right? Here's it. So basically, to 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 kind of break that apart, it's like yeah, if my parents didn't have me, this wouldn't have happened. It's true. It's true. But the thing is, you can't just start point blame as far as assigning blame goes. I'm not assigning blame. If I'm saying, hey, this is a factor or whatever, as, unless I'm doing it as a joke. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So it's like, okay, so if when you do cross the line to start assigning blame, mm-hmm. that's when you can't be like, okay, it's everything else. You got to blame yourself. But it, let's say you're not assigning blame. You're just maybe analyzing it from an objective perspective. <laughs> see what I'm saying? You can identify all kinds of causes, all kinds of causes. See what I'm saying? And they're probably true. Okay. But not having anything to do with causing blame or or assigning blame or saying whose fault it is. See what I'm saying? Check. Okay, it's just uh, another example of how, like, you or we, whatever. When I talk to you a lot of the time, sometimes we'll take a scenario and I'll just sort of marvel at the different working parts of this scenario. Like, oh, isn't it interesting how this is this and this is this, but you could do this and look at it this way, too. Even though it has nothing to do with me, you know, and it has nothing to do with any kind of actions to be taken or nothing like that. It's essentially just analyzing the scenario and being interested in it Mm -hmm. versus you. You always look at the scenario like, okay, yeah, cool. That's cool. You analyze it. But what do you do? You know, your attitude is a real take action kind of kind of approach. So I think that's where I think that's where we're getting some some misfires see what i'm saying (laughs) you think that it's like i want to base some action to be taken upon the way i'm looking at it when it requires no action it's just the way to sort of look at it you know but if you want to take action like okay so who do we blame that's that's the beginning of taking action in a way who do we blame what do we got to fix who do we got to fix whatever to move forward to fix the situation to you know whatever rectify it then you got to be like, okay, I got to identify the problem that I can change. And then, yeah, in that case, then, yeah, that problem's going to be yourself. It's the best way. And if it's not, then you're not going to solve anything. Yeah. You just going to sit around and blame people. Yeah. But does that make sense? Maybe. I don't recommend it. No, nah, yeah. And, and that's that the thing. Much. Yeah. And again, even that was saying, I don't recommend it, that's like, that's super indicative of just like, yeah, you don't recommend that as a problem solving technique. That's a, t- that's a take action approach right there. See what I'm saying? It's kind of like if we came to a stoplight and then the stoplight's red. I'm like, wow, isn't that red stoplight super nice? Like it's a beautiful <laughs> color of red. And you're going to be like, yeah, like, but it means to stop. So we're stopped. I'm like, no, I, I know, but isn't it kind of beautiful? Then it turns oh. green. Wow. Isn't that a beautiful green light? And you're like, yeah, but it's, it means to go. And I'd be like, cool, but it's a pretty nice shade of green. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? It's like two different perspectives. Yeah. And then of course you'd roll through the green light and you know, I'd go get after it. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll leave that one at that. All right. Um, Obviously, the attempts to save Carl Pandram were ceased, and here's how his life ends, according to this book. At Leavenworth, 
the lights of the isolation had burned into a pale gray dawn on September 5th when Pan's Ram heard the distant distant rattle of footsteps. It was not quite six o'clock. Guard Ballard went over to the steel door leading to an outer corridor and peered through the small barred window. Warden White's voice was heard and the guard turned a brass key in the lock. The door swung open. White entered the isolation at the head of the procession of some 20 persons, including guards and newspaper reporters. Immediately behind the warden was Marshal McIver, McIver and the tall government hangman carrying the leather harness over one arm. White stopped in front of Pandram's cell. The spectators pressed themselves discreetly against the opposite wall as Pansram faced them, searching through the wire mesh with his hostile eyes. He saw two men in clerical garb on the fringes of the crowd and at once began to roar at White. Are there any Bible-backed cocksuckers in here? I thought you might change your mind, White apologized. These gentlemen came a long way to offer you comfort. Get him out, shouted Pansram. I don't mind being hanged, but I don't need any Bible-backed hypocrites around me. Run him out, warden, or you'll have one hell of a time getting me out of this cell. Every man I get a hand on is going to the hospital. White knew Pansram was within a condemned man's traditional rights regarding witnesses of his own execution. The disappointed clergymen were escorted out. All right, Pansram said, let's get going. What are we stalling for? White motioned the guards and newsmen to proceed to the exercise yard as Bollard opened Pansram's cell. Pansram helped his escorts fasten the leather corset. Anything you want to say? Asked the hangman, fumbling with a strap. Pansram snapped impatiently. Yes, hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could hang a dozen men while you're fooling around. In the yard, the newsman took hurried notes. The scaffold looked strange and somehow unexpected. Dew glistened on the boards that had the raw, temporary look of a structure erected for a county fair. In less than a minute, the back door of the isolation opened and Pansram emerged between Ballard and the hangman. Pansram was almost running ahead, half dragging the taller, his taller escorts. White and the marshal hurried behind, trailed by officers trying to look dignified as they ran. In the confusion, the spectators parted into two lines as, they procession, as the procession raced pell-mell in their direction. Pansram's face was rigid and looked straight ahead, his eyes fixed on the rope. Only at the foot of the stairs did he seem to notice the transfixed onlookers. He paused, looked slowly around, and spat twice. Then his face was forward again. Everyone's nostrils inhaled the sweet smell of new oak and hemp, and everyone's eyes followed him up the 13 steps, which he felt with his feet. He hurried up the gallows as toward the gate, pulling Ballard and the hangman with him. Reporters who had witnessed this event were surprised by its swiftness, and their accounts were in conflict as to the time and exact detail. There was uncertainty as to whether Pansram had been able to spit on the executioner as he had promised he would. The reporter's notebooks had hung limp during the swift adjustment of the rope, the exploding sound of the opening doors, and the swift downward stroke of the body. 
Later, they recalled the mist which had settled on the yard and the indistinct figures of guards watching from a tower on the wall. The prison had been quiet. The first bell was not yet scheduled to ring for an hour. Reporters had left the same way they came in and were relieved to find themselves outside the walls. Records of official entry regarding the death of Carl Panzram are brief. Dr. Justin K. Fuller, one of the two doctors in attendance, stepped forward and to the stretched body underneath the gallows, placed a stethoscope gently on the chest, and palpitated the neck. Later, he dictated his report to a prison clerk. Medical Certificate of Death, Carl Panzram. I hereby certify that I examine the body of Carl Panzram in accordance with the directions of the Surgeon General of the U.S. Public Health Service and Attorney General at U.S. Penitentiary, Leavenworth, Kansas, on September 5, 1930, and pronounced him dead at 6.18 a.m. I found the cause of death to be dislocation, cervical vertebra, strangulation, legal execution. And so ended the life of Carl Panzram on September 5th, 1930. And while Panzram died, evil, as we see, certainly did not die with him. It still walks among us today. And as we've been going back and forth on, uh, obviously Pan's Ram did not get many benefits in life. But that does not excuse his actions. And we are responsible for what we do. We are responsible for our lives. And if someone's had horrible things happen to them, if they've seen horrible things, if they've done horrible things, it's still important that you don't become those horrible things, that you don't propagate those horrible things. Instead, be the hero, be the savior that absorbs those things, those horrible things, and passes on good. And you do that, you do that by pe- treating people with respect and being just kind to other human beings. And it's it's one of those things that I thought about this one character, this this Henry Lesser, this guard, this is the first person that that Panzram ever thought did something nice to him. And who knows if that had happened earlier, maybe it could have been a, a, a teacher at the state school. Maybe that's what tips someone towards the good you know are you that person can you be that person that sways someone from doing evil to doing good simply 
through some sympathetic word, some compassionate gesture. Think about that. You might be that person. I might be that person. We might be that person that sets the good example by being nice, by being kind. And here's the dichotomy. At the same time, you got to be strong enough to stand up to people that think might makes right. You got to be strong enough to face the malevolent force of evil. And you have to recognize that that force is everywhere. That that satanic force that is waiting to prey on the weak. And if we don't fight it, then that force is going to win. So we cannot stand down. And I think that's all I've got for tonight. Kind of a rough one. Yes. It, when you think about it, this is like this is pretty psycho, like pretty psychotic, it's sick, way psycho. and evil for sure. But I don't know if it was just the way he it is. The, it is. I do know it's the way he presented it was like it wasn't like as tragic as I don't know the other stuff that well, I've, that I've heard. Let me tell you part of it. He wrote it. And he became humanized in your head. So you were listening to him talk and you were sympathizing with him and you were understanding the harshness that he went through and you were completely detached and not, you didn't humanize any of the victims at all. Right. Yes. That's what it was. Opposite of the beginning when I'm talking about this beautiful girl, Louisa and what she went, you know, you understood her. Go watch some of the videos of that girl. Yeah, no, like no, no. The, just such a nice person. Yeah, like just like an angel. Yeah, and that's what you relate to. So as a as a person yourself, as a human being yourself, it's very easy for you to get for you to humanize someone, right? For you to you listen to Carl Panzer and you hear what he's been through, and he's telling it from his perspective, and all he's telling right. is an eleven year old boy. You don't know anything about that boy, right? Just some arbitrary, arbitrary thing. Doesn't even person. barely exist. Yeah. It's a word, yeah. boy. That's all it is. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. It's not. That's yeah. a little kid. Yeah. That's a little kid. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly what it was. You, you're going through his struggles, and sure, he's not putting, well, yeah, and, you know, he's talking about his anger, and everyone, did, and you're like, dang, okay, dang, that's, you know, he's he's a mad guy, and sure, I'm not, you know, I'm not siding with him, but it's it's more like you're just getting it from his, his perspective, you know? Then and he dies, and, and you're and like, well, you deserved him. it. Yeah, yeah. But if, yeah, if they told that the whole story of, like, I don't know any one of those any victims, one of those victims. You'd be like, "Dang, man, this is heavy. It's dark." And he sort of like 
he didn't go into any kind of graphic detail. You'd no. just be like, and I committed sodom. In fact, I was like, bro, how are you even doing that? You're just, I just sort of committed, tried to commit sodom. Like, how do you do that? You know, you just, hey, come here let me commit sodomy on you. I mean, I don't know. Well, he, I think that's what he made it sound like. 200 pound dude against an 11 year old boy. Yeah. But even like the, you know, his inmates or whatever, yeah. like everyone who's just, and the point is there, he just sort of well, just, he's preying on the weak. He says all the time, he's just picking a guy that's 132 pounds. Yeah. But he, yeah. And, and he he's just, 200 pounds. Yeah. Six feet, 200. Yeah. You know, he was, I don't know what the, what the deal is, but like where I grew up in new England, mm-hmm. the houses, like the ceilings are lower. And the doors are smaller because people were smaller yeah. back in the day. And this is 100 years ago, but or whatever, 90 years ago, yeah. but people are a little bit smaller, yeah. you know? So him at six foot, 190, is kind of like a yoked dude. Yeah. Plus with all that, you know, years of yeah. hard labor. Swinging an 18-pound hammer. Yeah, you know, he was strong. Yeah, but he just sort of breezes over it, though. You know, there's no yeah. graphic details. Just sort of, yeah, I just committed some bad crimes. You know, so that's why it's always good to think about the perspective of the other people. Yeah, it's rough. Man. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. But you know, and yeah, he could have. He should have. He should have chose a path. Is what he should have done. Yeah. Like how you said. Yeah, you said that, right? Well, more important, I think. Because you're gonna have some people out there that are gonna choose the wrong path. Yes, they're not. They're not gonna go. They're not gonna go in a good direction, and that's why it's important to be prepared mentally and physically to stand up and face that man. It's true. You got to. Speaking of which, yes, take some jujitsu. I'll tell you right now, you take some jujitsu, you really decrease the probability of anyone yeah. attempting sodomy on you. Yes. That is a big help. Reduce, reduce. You know. Um, Anyway, what that means is we're doing (laughs) jujitsu regardless of our our our, what we're trying to defend ourselves from. Uh, Jujitsu versus evil. That's what I'm saying. Yes, it helps. If you yes, you need all your tools to fight against evil. Yeah, big time. There's evil in the world. Confirmed. Yeah, fully live evil in the world right now. It's crazy. Every once in a while, I'll flash. It'll flash in my mind how v- valuable jujitsu is. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if someone said, "Hey, you can you can never go to the beach ever again," or you can never do jujitsu ever again. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Oh, you you might have <laughs> some issues. No, I just think that's funny. How like the two biggest things you can put on the pedestal <laughs> are the beach and jujitsu. I'm just saying you got to give up one. Yeah. The beach isn't even on my list. I mean, other than to go surfing, but the, right. just going to the beach for you is a thing. For me, it's not really a thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, put it this way: like I, I could, I'd trade a lot. I'd give up a lot to keep jujitsu if it was in. Yeah, here's something. Jeopardy. If you know some jujitsu, if you know some jujitsu, if you know more jujitsu than most other people around you, that's a real beneficial thing. Yeah, big time. Can, can you? And it's funny because if you don't know anything, you're a little bit ignorant. In fact, you're a lot ignorant, and you don't even know what you don't know. And so you're sitting and you're you're walking across a parking lot, right? Yeah. And it's ten o'clock at night, and someone comes to bother you, and you think in your mind like, oh, "I'll just do this and this," and you don't know anything. Yeah, it's a complete. 
it's a complete hole in your game. And the game yeah. of life is what I'm talking about. The game of life, yeah. If, it is. If you know jujitsu and you're walking across 10 o'clock at night and someone's going to give you a problem, you actually know what to do. Yeah. And and the person that doesn't know anything, they're so far just behind. It's crazy. I remember in college where, and I knew how to do a rear naked choke. Mm-hmm. And I, I like, you know, just from watching UFC one, yeah. two, <laughs> never trained an actual jiu-jitsu class. But I remember in college, I got into this like fight, right? And we, we ended up not fighting fighting but you know the kind that we started to fight right mm-hmm. and but it was nothing you know whatever. was it a friend no okay he was like was it a known person uh, or just a total no. random yeah he was like at a party scenario okay. no i didn't know um and and you know whatever it doesn't matter what how he got broken up whatever and we continued you know our lives but right now i'm thinking back to like how much I didn't know, like what? But what was I even thinking? Like, what was I gonna do? Yeah. Just sort of throw punches, you mm. know, or something like this? Like what? Like even when you do get in a fight and you don't really know any, especially in jujitsu, it's like man, you're just sort of it's sort of a crapshoot, really. Mm-hmm. Compared to if you know jujitsu, it's not a crapshoot. It's like oh, I'm gonna either decide to do whatever I want, kind of thing, to this person. If you want to, if you don't train jujitsu and you want to know what it's like picture anything that you actually know how to do like shoot a basketball mm-hmm. or play basketball yeah and picture someone that never played before playing against you yeah that's what's gonna happen yeah if you don't know anything or like say, go find someone if you ever can find someone who doesn't know how to ride a bike or a skateboard I yeah. guess not everyone yeah. knows how to ride a skateboard but a bike and say hey let's race to the end of the block on this bike and that person doesn't even know how to ride a they've bike they've never been on a bike before yeah. they have zero chance of beating you just, I know rats like that anyway sure. so, so train some jujitsu train some jujitsu go take some classes bro just go and go learn how to ride that bike bro you right don't gotta now, be right now in America you can train jujitsu in so many different places it's amazing yeah it is very amazing there's amazing places to train jiu-jitsu, so go train some jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And when you do so, you want to do gi and no gi. So when you get a gi, what gi do we get? We all know. If you don't already, origin gi. Mm-hmm. Go to originmain.com. They got rash guards on there as well. Joggers as well. Shirts. Supplements. Supplements, of course. Mm-hmm. And that's a good one, too. Where And I took your advice. You know, okay, remember I told you, like, oh, yeah, uh, I didn't take joint warfare for, like, a oh, few yeah, days. Yeah. And you were yeah. like, what? Why not? I was like, because <laughs> oh, I just, I don't know, I forgot or whatever. And you're just, here's the thing. I admitted something to myself. <laughs> Sometimes when I didn't, back then, when I didn't take it, it's not that I forgot. It's just that I would be like, oh, I'll, I'll take one tomorrow or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm literally, I was literally too lazy to just go in the pantry right here now, by the way, like three, four feet away. Yeah. Get it. Open it so up. So you put it in your routine now. Bro, yes. And this is how I put it into my routine. I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to accept the fact that I'm too lazy to spend literally 20 <laughs> seconds, literally, and drink, you know, and take some pills. Yeah. There's I'm, like no way I can accept that. Dude, I'm glad I'm not trapped in your brain yeah, with bro. you. <laughs> I'm kind of am, I guess, a little bit. Yes. For at least two hours a week, I'm a little bit trapped in your brain. <laughs> well, you're the one who's correcting it because yeah. I'm like, no way. Because you're like, dude, just do it in your routine and you make it sound so easy because it doesn't feel that easy. But then I'm thinking like, wait, it is that easy. Really? Yeah. I'm just not allowing yeah. it. To so you put it by easy. your toothbrush or whatever? 
No, I keep it in the pantry, bro. 15 seconds. Oh, but you just do it. Just do it. Yeah. You do a little extra. Do that 15 yeah, seconds. very little extra. Anyway. Check. Joint warfare, krill oil. These are the ones that I'm talking about that are in my routine every single day. Mm-hmm. Joints. Also, keep the joints uh, discipline, which if you don't know, we have a new flavor of discipline out. It's called Tropic Thunder. <laughs> yep, I got mine. And what? Let's let's be real and let's be honest. What it what it is? Pina colada. Is pina colada. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't have Wouldn't something know. out there called pina colada. Yeah. Come on, man. Wait, Tropic Thunder isn't that a movie? Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's a good movie. <laughs> Leif Babin's favorite movie of all time. No, actually, I don't. But it's right up there. Uh-huh. Leif quotes that movie a lot. Right. I'm gonna there tell you. Go. you. I'm gonna tell you right Dang, here. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen Tropic Thunder? No. It's definitely fun. I know what movie that is, though. I think. So Robert Downey Jr., right? Yeah, like but the most important character in there is Tom Cruise's character. He's really, really funny. Les Goodman, I think, is his name. All Anyways, right. uh, so we couldn't call it, in clear conscience, we couldn't call it Pina Colada. That's just wrong, right? No, yeah. not happening. It's an alcoholic beverage. We're not doing it. Makes it's kind of, a, kind of a foo-foo. Is that a good word? Foo-foo. Kind of a foo-foo. Sure. Yeah. Like you ever been to an Italian restaurant or like where they where it's real it's real nice? It's too nice. Like they don't have like hey, can I just get some chicken parmesan over here? Yeah. And when they bring you some food, it's really small. Yeah. <laughs> and it has like a long like name. Yeah. You know? <laughs> In a different language. Yeah, yeah. But you know the kind <laughs> they put extras on the name, you know. Yeah. You know, fresh caught from the Appalachian blah 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 in the title mm-hmm. you know it's like that kind yeah but there's never very much food the longer the title the less food you're gonna get yeah probably <laughs> that's good, that's a yes, good rule good right rule. there so couldn't go pina colada too foo-foo we went tropic thunder for Leif babin yeah. he can get his tropic thunder on it's pretty powerful and then don't forget about mulk which additional protein additional protein and slash dessert yeah because it will fulfill your dessert desire yeah when you get done with the ribeye steak. So what's the gain? Like when you, you know, when you're going to, when you lift weights to elicit gains, mm-hmm. right? The, you have to have a certain. Gains of, with a Z. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to eat uh, what? Certain amount of protein, right? Yeah. It's like 0. 0.7 or 0. 0.6. Yeah. Grams. Or just one gram. Yeah. But here's actually what I learned with the one gram. Any protein, like any macro they eat too much of mm-hmm. gets turned to fat and in, pro- in proteins it gets turned to sugar first from what i understand so you can't eat too much protein here's how you eat too much protein if you're going like two grams per body weight per pound of body what weight. about nine grams per body per pound of body weight i think that's fine <laughs> so here's a good way to do it so in the morning i make an omelet right with egg whites mm-hmm. and it's good Good protein, clean, whatever. Some of the best. But when you kind of, if you're starting, which I, I kind of started to measure these things or keep track of, okay, how many calories am I really mm-hmm. eating, whatever. So I realized there's not that much protein in a regular size, even a double size egg white omelet mm-hmm. with no cheese and nothing. Mm-hmm. Like that. So, boom, you make your egg white omelet, milk train, <laughs> going on the side, make your milk shake. Boom, perfect. Oh, milkshake. Perfect amount of protein Check. is what I'm saying. If, in fact, you're into, you know, getting stronger and whatnot. Yep. And on top of that, we got Warrior Kid Milk, which 
is basically gonna take over all milk drinks for children in the very short period of time because everyone wants their kid to be healthy. The kid wants to be healthy and strong and the kid wants something that tastes absolutely amazing. So there you go, warrior kid milk. Yeah, remember like back in the day, what was the fruit, Hawaiian punch? Or was that only in Hawaii? That no, wasn't no, 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 no. That was, that was a just called Hawaiian punch. <laughs> Bro, tasted like. Hey, pretty. are English muffins only in England? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Keep Actually, listening. English muffins aren't in England. It's not a British thing. Yeah, just yeah. like French fries aren't in France, no, right? No, I don't think They call so. them like. Palm frites. Something else. French fries. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You used to drink the Hawaiian punch when you were little. Mouth all red, tasted pretty good. Yeah, well, it was super strong. Sugar. Yeah, but bro, you can't be giving your kids that. Like no, now, with no, the knowledge no, that you, yeah, no, it's like abuse. Not happening, yeah, really, it's child child abuse. Yeah, and it's not just that. These these regular chocolate milk. What is that? It's just corn syrup in milk. Yeah, that's all it is. And chocolate. Yeah, and chocolate and sugar. But when you get your kid warrior kid milk, guess what? You're making them stronger, smarter, faster. Better and it tastes good and it tastes delicious because kids don't want to drink something that tastes like crap. No, they they don't drink something tasty. So, yeah, Warrior Kid Milk, all that stuff that we just talked about is at originmain.com. If you want to support, that's a good stuff, all American made. We throw that in there like it's a no big deal. Yeah, go watch some of the videos of of looms being remade. It's good. (laughs) Also, if you want to represent while on the path, Jocko has a store called Jocko Store. So, you go to jockostore.com. This is where you can get shirts and whatnot. Discipline equals freedom. Shirts. shirts. T-shirts, rash guards. Plenty of, yes, other rash guards on there. Um, Truckers hats or uh, flex fit hats. Sure. <laughs> Whichever one you want, man. Whichever one. I like the flex, flex fit. I'm putting, I'm going to put a bunch of new stuff on there. A bunch. 2019. It's 2019, oh. by the way. Oh, Happy New yeah, Year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brother. Happy New Year. Thanks, bro. Thanks. Isn't it funny? Like I felt like you felt kind of uncomfortable telling me Happy New Year. <laughs> kind of like it's yeah, too like sentimental. Like, like hey, Happy New Year, bro. bro. No. Happy New Year. We got work to do. Let's go focus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, New Year, New Gee. See what yeah, I did there? You yeah, know how they say yeah. New Year, New Me. New Year, New Oh, gee. got it. I cool. saw. I saw that cool. on Twitter. I think. Anyway. Um. Oh yeah. I'm gonna put a bunch of new stuff there for this year. Okay. Cool. Uh, you can also get Jocko White Tea that comes in either uh, regular tea form, like I'm drinking, with tea bags, or the can form, like Echo's drinking, with the can. And the good thing about it is it's the only beverage in the history of the world that's guaranteed 100% to give you an 8,000-pound deadlift. That's 8,000 pounds. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> Click subscribe. So annoying. Okay, just skip this part. Uh, the Warrior Kid Podcast. That one you should check out. If you don't check out the Warrior Kid Podcast, whether you have kids or not, check it out. Lots of good lessons from Uncle Jake. So do that. And then don't forget about your Warrior Kid soap. And it's not soap for Warrior Kids. It's soap made by a Warrior Kid, Aiden, who's got his own business at irishoaksranch.com. Uh, what's that? Earth made, Earth made. Yeah. What the soap? Well, he gets like goats. Like if you, you want, <laughs> you want to know the the source of right. your 
of your oh yes stuff. yes yes like there you go what do you say okay. Lo- locally sourced well yeah. it's not local technically well, depending depends on where, on you, where are. you are yeah. yes but nonetheless made in america that's yeah. true okay so youtube you can also subscribe to the youtube channel which is the jocko podcast youtube channel yes. and are since you're putting all this new stuff on the store you're gonna put some new videos up at some point in the you know america history <laughs> america yeah sure uh yes i am thank you Okay, well, I know you were just reminder. telling me about one. Yeah. Which you've done this before where you tell me about a video and I never see it for four months. Well, because like, <laughs> all right. Well, and this one could be one of those because it's Great. like, I'm going to be like pushing it, you know? <laughs> Remember the Warpath one? Yeah. yeah. You know, I pushed it in the music and I was like, hey, uh, should I make a bunch of things crumbling down? Is that going to be dumb? Let's Debatable. find out. We're going to find out. But <laughs> in the process of doing that, sometimes I'm like, this is kind of dumb, so I gotta change it. So I'm gonna see. I'm gonna uh, push it just for, for out of fun, but yeah, cool, okay. I'm gonna cool. try. How about that? More Legit. more videos, and also we got psychological warfare, which we have failed. We were going to get out that for the new year. We did not accomplish that, so that's not good. But we will work on it, and the current one is available. Psychological warfare on iTunes, Google Play, MP3 platforms of all kinds, where you can get little messages. We'll call from yeah. me tracks about how to overcome a particular weakness that you might be dealing with in the moment. I thought about this with psychological warfare. Sometimes, like, when the weakness creeps in, we don't, like, want to fight the weakness. It's accept like, it. Yeah, yeah like, it. we're like, it's almost like, okay, this is me. You might not be able to, to, to relate because you get mad when you feel like weakness. Sometimes weakness will, like, creep in and I'll, look forward to not <laughs> lifting you know what I mean? or or like okay so there's this burger place right mm-hmm. i'm not gonna say which one and to go to this burger place there's a certain burger you can get that's like off the program you can't like, oh okay it's not a diet burger yeah so what I, you know, when you're like, oh, should I just stick to the program? But I'm really in the mood for this burger, right? And the weakness creeps in, takes hold. And then you made the decision. All right, hey, I'm going to slip on the diet right now. I'm back on the plan. I'm back, I'm back on the program tomorrow. But I'm going to slip right now. Mm. When you make that decision in your head, you feel good. Like, oh, I don't want to change my mind because I'm so looking forward to the burger. See what I'm saying? So it's like one of those things where the reason sometimes people won't list or actually this has never happened to me, but I'm imagining the pe- if someone doesn't want to listen to psychological warfare, that's why. Okay. Because it's like, oh, they just secretly they don't want to. They accept it. And it's like, you know, and they accept the weakness. Yeah. This again reminds me that I'm glad I'm not trapped inside your head for more than two hours. It's a now. daily struggle. <laughs> Nonetheless, psychological, it's a good one. It helps. Yep. It helps. You got you, you to gotta accept the help. All you have to do is press play. Yeah. That's the point. You gotta, that's what well, you're saying. Here, you have to press play. You gotta, there's a little psychological part that you have to accept the fact that you're going you're gonna to get a spot. It's like in the gym. right? When you need a spot in the gym, you don't put on some light weight. You know? you get, if you have regular weight on, you don't need a spot in. Cool. But you got to make the decision to put the heavy weight on there. And then you got to make the decision to go find someone to spot you. That part is hard for people. That's what I think. That's what I think. But once you get the spot, you got the spot. But you're in no danger of uh, getting buried underneath that, that bench. See what I'm saying? Check. That's what psychological warfare is. <laughs> 
Cool. Anyway, get we'll it on it. Uh, what Amazon Music and iTunes, Apple mm-hmm. Music. You know wherever the, they sell MP3s, that's where you get them. Psychological yeah. Warfare. It's a good one. Very good one. Also, vary up your workout, man. Get some more workout stuff from Onnit.com. Go onnit.com slash Jocko. That's where you get. They got some good stuff on there. Ropes, battle ropes, maces, clubs, kettlebells. Of course, the best kettlebells. I mean, I'm the best I've ever used. I haven't used that many, but I don't even want to try out any other ones because they're the best in my opinion. And uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff on there. A lot of good uh, tips on there as well. And information. Anyway, on it.com slash Jocko. Good spot. Also got some books. Um, Mikey and the Dragons is out. It's live. And we should not ever run out of it again. I I printed a lot more. So if you want Mikey and the Dragons for you, for your kids, for your neighbor kids, for your library, for your school, order Mikey and the Dragons. It is a story that will teach your kids and all children that read it. How to stand up and face their fears. It's so cool to see all the pictures yeah, that people post of like, oh, the kids yeah, like, the yes, kids. I got my kids, you know, for Christmas and stuff like that. Also, a lot of kids, uh, you know, oh, this is my kid's favorite book. Yeah. You know, this is now my kid's favorite book. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. So super stoked. If you haven't read it, check it out. Mike and the Dragons. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Also, Way the Warrior Kid and Way the Warrior Kid to Mark's Mission. And good news, I had a deadline of finishing Way the Warrior Kid 3 by New Year's Day. Guess when I finished it? New Year's Day. This morning. (laughs) Yeah, New Year's Day. I had to go and finish it before I worked out because I was at my deadline. Guess what? Prioritize. So So it was your deadline. My deadline. Oh, okay. Yeah, my deadline to finish the book. You're good, man. So, yeah. So that'll be coming out, but right now, get get uh, Way the Warrior Kid and Way the Warrior Kid to Mark's Mission. Those are both out. Discipline equals Freedom Field Manual. I know a lot of folks grab that for Christmas. Appreciate it. Appreciate most that you're spreading the word to people that you know. A little gift. Give someone the gift of discipline. That's what I'm talking about. If you want the, the audio version, it's not on Audible. It's on Amazon Music, iTunes, Google Play, and other MP3 platforms. Of course, we have Extreme Ownership which was recently uh, made some kind of chart for the audiobook. Leif, Leif Babin and I reading the audiobook. Well, me and the Texas Batman reading the audiobook. And we also read the audiobook for the, the follow-up to that book, which is called The Dichotomy of Leadership, which I kicked off today with a tiny little excerpt. Um, that's the follow-on book. And I think, yeah, some people think it's better Interesting. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that it is because now we've written more books and a little more experience to learn more. So find out for yourself. Dichotomy of Leadership, that one's available. We also got Echelon Front. That's our leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. That's what we do. If you need help with the leadership at your organization, and if you have any kind of issue, whatever kind of issue you have, it's a leadership problem. It's not a problem of HR, it's a leadership problem. It's a, not a problem in the finance department, it's a, it's a leadership problem. It's not an operational problem, it's a leadership problem. The problem that you have in your organization is a leadership problem. If you need help with that, go to echelonfront.com for details. 
Also, we got the muster. The muster is now live. We got Chicago, we got Denver, we got Sydney. If you want to come to the muster, leadership conference, extremeownership.com. All of the musters have sold out and all the musters will sell out. So if you want to come get there early, I think there's maybe a ticket or two left for the live podcast that we are recording January 9th in New York City. If you want to come to that, try and jump on and buy a ticket real quick because it's real close to sold out. Look forward to seeing there. Also, EF Online. So we just launched this. What this is, this is an online interactive leadership training source. It's myself and the the rest of the Echelon Front training team put this together. Wanted to be able to reach more people. Some of the, you know, this kind of spawned from organizations that we work with where they have tens of thousands or even in some cases hundreds of thousands of employees and they want us to train everybody on the fundamental principles of combat leadership. Obviously, with our six or seven instructors, we can't do that. And so we had to figure out a way way to scale the educational process. And so what we did is we went virtual and so we put this together and once we made it, we said, well, once we made it, we're making it direct to consumer as well. So if you want to check that out, you can go to efonline.com, efonline.com. And speaking of EF, EF Overwatch, this is where we are connecting proven leaders, proven combat leaders from the spec ops community and from combat aviation with companies in the civilian sector that need these experienced leaders to step up and lead their organization. So efoverwatch.com is where you can get involved with that, whether you're someone that's looking for talent, you can click on Talent Seeker, or whether you're someone, a vet that's looking for a career, click on Career Seeker and fill those out. We are standing by to help you. And if you wanna cruise with us, kinda of hard. <clears throat> yes, sir. We can be found and communicated with on the interwebs, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on the Facey. Echo is at Echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink. And finally, thanks to all our military personnel out there. Thank you for standing up and taking the fight to the enemy and to our folks at uniform, in uniform, here at home, including police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and the correctional officers and border patrol and all the first responders. Thank you for standing up to evil here at home and to Louisa, Jess Pearson, and Marin Ulan, who were murdered in Morocco. We will remember you and to the despicable savages that took your lives. We will remember you too. And we'll remember those like you. And we will never surrender to the evil that you bring into the world. We will stand up. We will be strong. And we will win. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.